We are in part five of a series called The Master's Twelve, and we've been studying the disciples of the Lord. Um, the twelve, they seem quite familiar to most of us, um, not just because we heard about them in Sunday school, but because they are just like us. And if they're not just like us, they're just like other people that we know. The disciples are real and they are raw, and that's why we can identify with them. Not one of these men was an accomplished scholar or an exceptional orator or a distinguished theologian. In fact, all of them were outsiders as far as the political and religious world of Jesus' day was concerned. They were far, far from outstanding. They were actually very ordinary. They were prone to mistakes and misunderstandings. They were susceptible to bad days and bad attitudes. They all too often showed poor judgment and sometimes pathetic self-centeredness. Anybody know anybody like that? Don't point. Unless you're doing this number. And yet as ordinary as they were, these men, these 12, left an indelible impact on the world and they still continue to influence us 2,000 years later. And the message of the four Gospels is crystal clear. If God could use them to turn their world upside down, then God wants to use you and me to do the same in our world. This has been our theme scripture and our text for the series. It's the calling of the twelve, Luke chapter 6. And when it was day, he called unto him his disciples. And of them he chose twelve, whom he also named apostles. Simon, whom he also named Peter, and Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called Zelotes, and Judas the brother of James, and Judas Iscariot, which also was the traitor. As we've studied already in this series, there are four listings of the disciples, and they're given in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then there's another listing given in one verse in Acts chapter 1. Plus, John mentions their names occasionally in his gospel. And those listings, whenever you see a listing of the 12 disciples, they seem to be organized into three groups with four disciples each, most likely based on their level of intimacy with Jesus or how long they had walked with him. But it's always divided into the same groups, the same men at the head of each group. Group one always has Peter at the head of the list and always includes Andrew and James and John in group one. Group two always has Philip at the head of the list in all the listings, and it includes Nathaniel or Bartholomew, and also Thomas and Matthew. And then group three has James, the son of Alphaeus, at the head of that list, and it includes Judas Labaius Thaddeus, or also known simply as Judas not Iscariot, and then Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, the traitor, the betrayer. And so those are the three groups of four in the 12 disciples. The 12 were just like all of us. They were quite unworthy and quite unqualified, but God delights in using nobodies in his kingdom 
So there is never a question of whose power is doing the work or who should receive all the glory. And I've said it, I think, every week. God delights in using ordinary saints because I've looked around after 40 years of ministry and some 50 years of being filled with the Holy Ghost and 60 years on this planet, and I figured it out. God chooses ordinary saints because that's the only kind of saints there are, and I'm really happy about that. Paul even alludes to this in 1 Corinthians. For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. Not many. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty and base things of the world, and even things which are despised by this world, hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught things that are. Let me back that phrase up. God has chosen things which are nothing to bring to nothing things that are quite self-important. Why? That no flesh should glory in his presence. The writer says in another place, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. If you came to see a collection of brilliant spiritual superstars tonight, you've chosen the wrong church. In fact, you couldn't choose any church on this planet that I know of where you could see that. Because this is not a museum for perfect people. This is a hospital for people who are hurting. This is a soul-saving station. It's a place where we preach that Jesus is the answer, not us, but him. It's a place where we know that if Jesus could save people like us, he can save anybody, anywhere, anytime, no matter what they've done or who they are. And we're so grateful for that. My goodness presence of the Lord is beautiful in this room tonight. Now we've already studied the lives of the disciples in that first group of four. Peter and Andrew and James and John. They were two pairs of brothers, all fishermen, all co-workers, basically all neighbors in the tiny town of Capernaum. And even though James and John came from a wealthy family, while Peter and Andrew did not, the four of them had probably been friends since childhood, but none of them were rabbis or religious leaders. None of them were especially distinguished or gifted. And then they were all Galileans, so they come from a rural area that in the rest of the nation of Israel at that time, that rural area of the Galilee was often deemed low class and uneducated by everybody else. And then it's kind of interesting as we've studied these four men, although it's two sets of brothers, they are each as different as night and day. And so these four, they're the most prominent four, and uh, you, you can disagree if you'd like, but as far as I can read, those four, the most prominent four, were re responsible for much of the ongoing tension that we read about among the twelve. So it seems to me, and I'm not being critical, but it just seems to me, especially what we call the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, three out of these four, they were more prominent only because their egos often created more problems, and that's why we read about them more often. And yet somehow, in his mercy and grace, God used those men to change our world, and we're still studying their lives 2,000 years later. 
So we've studied the first four, and we've also studied the lives of Philip and his friend Nathaniel in that second group of four. Now, we know nothing about either of them from the accounts of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. They really don't get mentioned except for the list. Only John's gospel gives us any information at all about Philip and Nathaniel, and even that is pretty sparse. It appears that they were also fishermen, and they were also from that rural Galilee region, and they may even have known some of the others before any of them were called to follow Jesus. They were all pretty much neighbors. Philip appears to have been the leader of the second group of four, and perhaps even the administrator for the twelve, organizing meals and organizing accommodations as they traveled around Israel. He's the one who introduces his friend Nathaniel to the master. So Philip is a soul winner. That's established. But he also tends to be so practical that he can easily become a pessimist. So he's got a problem. And then Nathaniel, while he has a pure heart, according to Jesus himself, his initial response to Jesus was marred by his personal prejudice and preference. Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? And so once again, these men are far from perfect. And yet, isn't it wonderful to know that God could use people just like that for his glory and his kingdom? And so we move on tonight, and I start with this. Perhaps no one among the twelve outside of Judas Iscariot has been the subject of more criticism than Thomas. It's a bit unfair that history has given him the nickname Doubting Thomas simply because he didn't believe that Jesus had risen from the dead. Because you can read in your Bible, Mark 16 and 14, that actually all of the disciples doubted the resurrection, but he got the nickname Doubting Thomas. Just like Philip and Nathaniel, his name is mentioned only once in the accounts of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And it's only when the list of the 12 is given. So basically, everything we know about the man Thomas comes from the Gospel of John, where three times he is referred to as Thomas called Didymus. Didymus means twin in Greek, and Thomas actually comes from a Hebrew word meaning twin. But we know nothing whatsoever about Thomas' twin, only that he was one. John 21 and 2 specifically names Thomas as part of the group of seven disciples who went back to fishing after the resurrection, of course, at the encouragement of Peter, who couldn't just sit around and do nothing. So it's highly probable that Thomas was a fisherman, and it's highly probable that at least seven of the 12 disciples were indeed fishermen. That includes all of the first group of four, and it includes three of this second group of four. We would have probably expected Jesus to employ a better strategy. We would have expected Jesus to choose a variety of men, a variety of giftings and skills and talents, but instead Jesus quite intentionally selected men with average abilities and very unexceptional backgrounds. Nothing special about them at all. Because Jesus didn't need their ability. He just needed their availability. 
Now, other than chapter 21, which we just looked at, John only mentions Thomas three times in his gospel. And in each instance, it's a time of turmoil and tension. And the disciples' emotions are raw, and their minds are confused. If you've ever looked around our world today and you've been troubled and your spirit has been in turmoil by everything that is going on, please know you're not alone and please know it's not the first time and please know God is still in control no matter what is going on in this world. If you think Christianity was born in a time of peace and unity, you're totally wrong. Christianity was birthed in the midst of the pagan Roman Empire where Christians were being persecuted. And it's just a mess in the world just about any given century. But our God is still in control because his kingdom is not of this world. The kingdom you are part of is not of this world. So if every kingdom in this world goes down, tomorrow you're still in the only kingdom that's going up my goodness and so their emotions are are raw and their minds are confused every time we see Thomas it's just one of those times and the first time is in chapter 11 of the gospel of John all of these references about Thomas come from John Jesus has departed from Jerusalem because his life is in jeopardy there And he knows it, and they know it. Jesus is ministering in the desert out beyond the Jordan where John the Baptist once preached, and great things are happening. And the crowds are beginning to gather again. It didn't matter where Jesus went, the crowds followed him. The crowds love Jesus, but the religious leaders, they are already plotting his death. In two recent incidents, they have even attempted to stone him for blasphemy. There are many people today, even saints of God, church members, preachers, whatever you want to call them, Christians, it doesn't matter what you call them. There are many people today that don't understand what was so obvious to the religious leaders of that day. And they hated Jesus, but they still knew he wasn't claiming to be part of God or like God or even just the Son of God. He was claiming to be God manifest in the flesh because the penalty for blasphemy against God was death by stoning. And so two times they know exactly what Jesus is claiming even if many people today, even religious Christian people don't understand it. They knew what he was claiming. I'm God in the flesh. And they've taken up stones to stone him. And Jesus has just slipped out of their midst. But he has still taken refuge out beyond the Jordan River in the wilderness. Because he knows if he gets near them, it's going to be another death threat, another plot to kill him. And it's not time yet. And now Jesus gets word from Mary and Martha that his dear friend Lazarus of Bethany is very sick. Jesus was very close to Lazarus and his sisters. He and the disciples had even stayed at their home. But the problem is, Jesus can't go anywhere unnoticed. And uh, Bethany's very close to to Jerusalem. If he goes to see his friend Lazarus, the Jewish leaders will definitely find out and arrest him. So no doubt the disciples are relieved They're just on pins and needles here. Is he going to go? Because if he goes, it's going to be trouble. 
And no doubt they're relieved when Jesus says, this sickness is not unto death. And then he just stays in the desert two more days. And for a moment, it looks like to them, to the twelve, that Jesus is finally playing it safe. And they breathe a sigh of relief. Because everybody likes a God who plays it safe. But if you've got a real God, he doesn't often play it safe. And then he surprises them on the next morning with his plans to return to Bethany. And he shocks them even more when he says, we're going, but Lazarus is already dead. What's the point, Jesus? This is totally risk. See, here's what they don't understand at the moment. Jesus didn't delay because he was afraid. Jesus only delayed so that the miracle would be greater. Jesus only delayed so that the miracle would be greater. Yes, it's a miracle to be restored from a life-threatening sickness, but can I tell you, it's an even bigger miracle to be resurrected from the death grip of the grave. So the disciples, you know what they do, because we're just like them, they try to talk Jesus out of it. Jesus, it's too risky. But they can soon see that he has already made up his mind. But they are very afraid. Because they know if Jesus returns to Bethany, there's no question in their minds that he will be killed and maybe all of them killed with him. And that is the moment that Thomas chooses to speak up. <laughs> then said Thomas, which is called Didymus, unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Thomas could see nothing but disaster ahead. Jesus is headed straight for a stoning for blaspheming God. That's what they've tried to do twice. And Thomas is resigned to it because there's not one thing he can do to prevent it. But if that's what the master is determined to do, then Thomas is resigned to it. Now, it's a good thing that the Bible is not on video. I know some of you think that's what the chosen is, but it's a good thing that the Bible is not on video because Thomas would have been rolling his eyes here and sighing deeply as he says, we're all going to die. That's a line that's actually famous from a CCC Easter drama a few years ago. We're all going to die. Neither Thomas nor his disciples, neither Mary nor Martha, none of them can see what Jesus is actually up to at this point. And just like Thomas, when they get there to Bethany, both Mary and Martha voice their confusion in identical complaints. I didn't notice this before. They say exactly the same thing, both of them. Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. Their complaints are identical. I know Mary, she's the spiritual sit-at-the-feet-of-Jesus one, and Martha's the workaholic, busy one, but their complaint is the same. Jesus, you let us down. Jesus, you didn't get here on time. Jesus, you didn't show up, and it's because you didn't that our brother has died. If you had just been here, if you had just been with us, Lazarus would not be dead. 
But then Jesus made them walk him out to a lonely grave and made them remove the stone from the mouth of the grave. And when he shouted, Lazarus, come forth, everything changed in a heartbeat and instantly all doubt was gone. Let me tell you, Jesus is never late. Jesus is never confused. Jesus never leaves us alone. Jesus never abandons his people. Jesus never doesn't show up. The Bible says, and he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face bound about with a napkin. And there was just one more little job left. Jesus said unto them, loose him and let him go. I've done the work. Now all you need to do is loose that man and receive him back into your family. Just let him go. And at that moment, brothers and sisters, everybody knew what they should have known by faith earlier. Jesus only delayed so the miracle would be greater. I speak to someone in the Holy Ghost tonight who is caught in the crosshairs of a trial or a trauma just like Thomas, just like Mary and Martha, just like the 12. And I say to you that while it feels like a delay and while it feels like a denial and while it feels like a defeat, Jesus is only delaying so that the miracle will be, you hear me in the Holy Ghost, Jesus is only delaying so that the miracle will be greater when he comes through for you. It's not that he's not going to come through for you. It's that he has delayed so that his name will be glorified. Goodness. I need you to lift up your hands and get a hold of that and just believe with me. Pastor said it. If we'll believe, Jesus is our healer. If we'll believe, nothing is impossible. If we'll believe, every mountain can be moved out of our way. Yes, 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 yes. I know we're here for Bible study, but the Holy Ghost comes to Bible study. The name of Jesus comes to Bible study. The blood of Jesus flows at Bible study. Yes, 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 yes. I hear the words of Scripture echoing in the back of my brain. The words of Jesus, have faith in God. I know you can't have faith in the government or the world system, but have faith in God. You may have lost your faith in your doctor, your surgeon, your banker, your lawyer, but have faith in God. Ah, my, 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 my. <laughs> you are not your own. You are bought with a price. So many people read that verse negatively. It's like you're not your own. You don't get to control yourself. God's going to boss you around. No, no, no. That's positive. You're not your own. You are bought with a price. My healing's already paid for. My deliverance is already paid for. I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. Oh, my goodness. I'm sorry. Just time out. Lift up your hands one more time. Get a hold of that for somebody. Jesus is only delayed so that your miracle is going to be astoundingly great, astoundingly awesome. He's only delayed so the miracle will be greater. Thank you, Jesus. Whew. 
Atela Sabodoraba. Mendelado Shabbatelabasa. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. My, my. My goodness. We catch another glimpse of Thomas in the upper room as the twelve gather with the master for the last supper on the night before his crucifixion. John spends five full chapters, chapter 13 through 17 in his gospel, five full chapters recounting this one conversation because this is the last time Jesus will speak to them before he dies. After the Lord has washed their feet and made some strange statements about his betrayal at the hands of one of them, Judas Iscariot abruptly gets up and departs the supper and heads out into the night. And the disciples' heads are spinning with questions by this time. It's a time of tension and turmoil. And of course it is Peter, always Peter, who breaks the silence by declaring his undying bravery. I will lay down my life for thy sake. And you can imagine the tension in the room as not just Peter, but all of them hear Jesus reply, the cock shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And then Jesus turns the conversation on a dime as he directs their attention beyond the current crisis to a heavenly hope. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way, you know. Jesus looks at them with love in his eyes and says, don't let the darkness get to you. Don't let the opposition rattle you. Don't let the persecution scare you. Don't let your hearts be filled with fear. You say you believe in God, don't you? Well, then believe in me. I'm God manifest in the flesh. Can I look at CCC tonight and say, don't let the darkness get to you. And don't let the opposition rattle you. And don't let the persecution scare you. Don't let your hearts be filled with fear. You say you believe in God. Well, well, you know who he is. Jesus is almighty God. You believe in God, believe also in me. Jesus tells them just beyond the crisis, just beyond the trial, just beyond death itself is a glorious hope, a glorious promise, a glorious place. 
Jesus looks at them and he says, guys, I know you're frightened to think about being here without me. But that's only because you don't know about the Holy Ghost yet. If you knew about the Holy Ghost, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you wouldn't be scared that I'm going away. And when I do return, when I crack the sky, in that instant you're going to know that it was worth it all every day, every trial, every rough road to serve me. Don't be afraid. You know where I'm going and you know how to get there. (laughs) And then Thomas speaks up again. Thomas. Thomas says, Lord, um, question, Jesus, Lord, we know not whither thou goest, and how can we know the way? And Jesus looks back at him, and it's a good thing the Bible's not on video, because probably now the Savior is rolling his eyes. Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. You see, Thomas' doubt at this moment has paralyzed him. Jesus, I know what you just said, but I can't see it, so I can't believe it. Let's get real, Jesus. We don't really know where you're going. We've never been there. So how in the world do you expect us to know how to get there? And Jesus' reply is both a comfort and a challenge. Thomas... If you want to get to that place, you just need to know a person. (laughs) If you're looking for the map, well, the map is me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. Thomas, I am the road. I am the revelation. I am the reason. Thomas, you can't do it without me. Nothing has changed on that point in 2,000 years. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. He is the road. He is the revelation. He is the reason. Nobody gets anywhere close to heaven except through Jesus. Are you glad you know him? Are you glad you serve him? Are you glad you know his name and you know his character and his faithfulness to you? My goodness. But despite his words to them, the death of Jesus when it happened was like a body blow to the twelve. They were absolutely shattered and totally demoralized. And suddenly they were forced to go into hiding for their own safety. In one unthinkable, horrible day, all of their hopes and dreams had been viciously nailed to a cruel cross and buried forever in a dark tomb. For them, it all died when they saw Jesus die. It all ended as the stone was rolled over the mouth of the grave that now mocked their faith. Now they had nothing left to live for. Everything they ever believed in was gone. You can criticize them if you want to, but you weren't there. For them, the darkness and the loss and the pain and the loneliness and the aching void, it was suffocating. But at least they were still friends. Some of them had been friends for many years. 
some of them even long before they knew Jesus. So in that moment, they did what friends do in such a tragic time of loss. They decided to get together to comfort one another, to share memories of the Master, and to weep over the huge hole that had been left in their hearts. All except Thomas, that is. We have no idea why Thomas missed their gathering, but wow, did he ever miss a moment. They had secretly gathered in a room behind locked doors, but suddenly Jesus stood in their midst and said, Peace be unto you. I know they heard echoes of the master on the raging sea of Galilee when he said, Peace be still. Because when Jesus speaks peace, every storm has to go. My goodness. I'm so sorry. Stuck again. Jesus would like to say, peace be still. Jesus would like to say, peace be unto you. To somebody in this Bible study, maybe to somebody watching online, you don't have to be at the mercy of your storm. When Jesus is in the midst of your storm, he can speak peace. It doesn't matter what the wind sounds like or what the waves look like. It doesn't matter if the thunder and the lightning is crashing. It doesn't matter. When Jesus says peace, it's peace. And so Jesus stands in their midst and he says, peace be unto you. And what a moment. He shows them his pierced hands and his pierced side. And he promises them through prophetic action. You are going to receive the Holy Ghost. And you are going to baptize multitudes. They are so glad to see Jesus again. It's like the oxygen came back into their souls all except Thomas, that is. He wasn't there. And because he wasn't there, the nickname stuck. Thomas the Doubter. Doubting Thomas. John's the only one that records it. John chapter 20. But Thomas, one of the twelve, called Didymus the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples... You ever had people come to you after you missed a great service and say, oh, you missed it. It was a great service. You know what? That's a hint from the Holy Ghost saying, get your carcass to church. That's what that is, just so you know. The other disciples therefore said unto him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas looked back at them. He said, I'm sorry, guys. I can't help but think you're delusional because I was there. I saw the crucifixion off in the distance. I could hear the crowd, and I saw those soldiers. So I got to tell you, except I can see in his hands the print of the nails, and except I can put my finger into the print of the nails and thrust my hand into his side, into that gaping wound in his side, I'm sorry, I will not believe. How merciful it was for Jesus to give Thomas a second chance. How merciful it is for Jesus to give us a second chance. After eight days, again, his disciples were within and Thomas with them. I'd like to think he never missed church again. 
Then came Jesus, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, here he goes again, peace be unto you. Then saith he to Thomas, reach hither thy finger and behold my hands. And reach hither thy hand and thrust it into my side. And Thomas, be not faithless, but believing. Thomas, you've walked with me all these months. You can believe in me, Thomas. It's really me. I showed up for one reason in the midst of turmoil and trouble, in the midst of persecution and opposition. I just showed up one more time, Thomas, to say, peace be unto you. Peace be still. And when Thomas suddenly realizes the significance, it probably takes a second, but when he realizes the significance of a mortal wound, anybody would have bled out in moments from that gaping wound. When he realizes the significance of a mortal wound in the body of a living man who is talking to him, all of a sudden, Thomas the doubter is not a doubter anymore. He immediately joins the title of respect that they've called Jesus for months now. Kyrios, master. They've said that thousands of times. But now he puts the title master together with Theos. That means the one and only true and living God. And in that moment, Thomas cries out in worship, you're not just my master. You're not just the wave walker and the storm stiller. You're almighty God in a body of flesh, my Lord and my God. goodness. Here it is. And Thomas answered and said unto him, my Lord and my God. And Jesus saith unto him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you've believed. That's good. But Thomas, blessed are they. I'm going to lose it here, I'm afraid. Blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas, there will one day be a group of people who never got to walk with me in the flesh, but they will walk with me in the spirit. They never sat with me at a campfire by the shores of the Sea of Galilee, but they will pray with me every day. They will worship me every day. Though they've never seen me like you did, though they've never touched me like you just did, they will receive the very same revelation that you just received, Thomas. They will know that I am their Lord and I am their God. I am God manifest in the flesh. I am the Word made flesh. I am the mighty God in Christ. I am the I am that I am. They'll have it. They never got to walk with me, Thomas, but they'll be sitting in a Bible study on the 1st of November 2023, and they'll be worshiping me for the very same revelation that you just received. He's my Lord, and he's my God. Oh. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Thomas the doubter said, I won't believe until the nail prints I see. But then the master appeared and his doubt fled away and Thomas fell to his knees. He's my Lord and my God. 
God. He's not just a stranger to me. When I looked past the veil, it was easy to see. He's my Lord and he's my God. Oh, we need a heavenly time out for a moment. Lift up your hands and worship the master. But worship the master who is also your Lord and your God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. That's why he can heal you. He's not just a master. He's your God. That's why he can deliver you. He's not just your rabbi or your teacher. He's almighty God. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Oh, thank you, Jesus. Isn't it wonderful? Aren't you glad you know who Jesus is? And the story of Jesus is amazing. And in the face of so much skepticism and criticism, I'd like to add tonight that nowhere in the pages of the Gospels did anyone ever deny the reality of Jesus' miracles. Nowhere. Who could deny them? They were too many and they were too public to be dismissed by even the most skeptical critic. Yes, the religious leaders tried to attribute Jesus' miracles to the power of Satan, but nobody in the Gospels ever denied that the miracles were real. What irritated the Pharisees was not Jesus' miracles. What they could not tolerate was being called sinners. They were too smug and too self-righteous. So when Jesus came preaching repentance and saying they were sinners, wretched, poor, blind, lost, in bondage, needing forgiveness, well, they could not and would not tolerate that. That is precisely why Jesus chose lowly, ordinary men, those who were not at all reluctant to acknowledge their own sinfulness. And nobody among the twelve was a more notorious sinner than Matthew. He was a tax collector or publican. He was among the most despised people in Israel because publicans, tax collectors, extorted money from their neighbors to give to the Roman occupiers and pad their own pockets at the same time. These unprincipled scoundrels often used thugs, petty criminals, to strong-arm money out of poor people. They were despicable and they were vile. And for a Jewish man like Matthew to be a tax collector, well, that was even worse. His occupation made him a traitor to his nation, a social pariah, and a religious outcast. Tax collectors were even forbidden to enter any synagogue. Matthew's only friends were the riffraff of society because tax collectors were on the same level as prostitutes and criminals. To the Jews, publicans were the very embodiment of sin. Mark and Luke call him Levi, which was probably his Hebrew name, while he calls himself Matthew, a Greek name, 
when he later writes a gospel account of his own. But on the day that he was called by the master, no one could have seen that development coming. That this man is someday going to write a gospel, nobody saw that coming. Because Matthew was not at all a likely candidate to become a disciple. One incident recorded in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, tells us nearly everything we know about him, and it just happens to be the very day that Jesus called him. Matthew 9 and 9, and as Jesus passed forth from thence, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the receipt of custom, and he saith unto him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. And Matthew's first impulse after being called by Jesus was to introduce his closest friends to Jesus. And Luke reveals that he threw an enormous party, which he was certainly rich enough to do. The guest list was not distinguished, however, and the Pharisees were most certainly not impressed. But you see, these lowlifes, they were the only kind of friends that Matthew had. By calling Matthew the publican, Jesus was announcing to anybody with an eye or an ear, no one is going to be excluded from my kingdom. Not even those that society or religious people consider irredeemable. Here's the setting. And it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house. Behold, many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. Of course they did. That's the only kind of friends Matthew has. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples with a sneer, Why? Does your master eat with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, They that be whole need not a physician, but they that are sick. So you go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's what Jesus said. You go ahead and you keep trying to pick the brightest and the best. But as for me, Jesus said, I'm going to have mercy. I'm going to call sinners to repentance. And I'm going to use the most average, the most ordinary, the most despised, the most overlooked to build my kingdom so that when my kingdom is built, it's not the capability of man that gets the glory. It's only God that receives the glory. <clears throat> it's really interesting I, I've enjoyed uh, teaching you in this series so much so, so far, and uh, uh, just it's amazing. It's um, interesting for me to see Matthew's unique perspective in his gospel. He's a tax collector. Matthew talks more about money in greater frequency and greater detail than any of the other gospels do. It's similar, if you think about it, to how Luke, the physician, includes greater detail about sicknesses and Luke uses precise medical terminology in his gospel because he's a physician. Silver and gold are only mentioned one time in Mark and only four times in Luke. Matthew mentions them 28 times. That's once a chapter on average. The famous parable of the talents appears only in Matthew's gospel and in the Lord's Prayer, Matthew even makes a unique substitution that you've probably noticed. Luke writes, and forgive us our sins. Matthew writes, and forgive us our debts. 
Because to him, everything goes on a spreadsheet. Matthew writes from the context that he understands. There are three tax collectors mentioned in the Gospels. Matthew, Zacchaeus, the little short tax collector who went up into a tree to see Jesus. And the third tax collector is a publican in one of Jesus' parables. And Jesus makes the point forever about who is included in his kingdom and who is received when he tells the story of two men who go up to the temple to pray. All of the publicans mentioned in the Gospels found forgiveness from Jesus. But here's the parable, Luke 18. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, a religious man, a good man. The other was a publican on the level of prostitutes and petty criminals, a bad man. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. You can almost hear the smug self-righteousness in his voice. God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are. They're extortioners and unjust and adulterers. And then he looks over his shoulder and he says, or even as this publican. Not me, God. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all I possess. That's his prayer. Did you notice? Me, 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 me. And the publican, standing afar off, he would not even so much as lift up his eyes to heaven. But he smote upon his breast saying, God, be merciful to me. I'm not perfect. I often fail. I have so many faults. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Nobody was expecting the punchline. Jesus said, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the Pharisee. For everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Don't mistake what Jesus is saying. This is not a lesson on pride. He's not saying that if you're proud of yourself. It's not that. He's saying you exalt yourself in the eyes of God, and this is talking about salvation and redemption and forgiveness. Basically, what Jesus just said is if you try to save yourself through your own righteous efforts, if you try to save yourself through your own goodness, if you think you've got it all together and you think you don't really need anything, and especially if you think you're so much better than other people, you're not going to be justified by God. But if you have the prayer of that publican, that man that was just like Matthew, who wrote that wonderful gospel, if you have his spirit, God... I'm just flesh and bone. I just, I just mess up so often. But Jesus, if you can use anything, maybe you could use me. Jesus, if you're forgiven those other people at CCC, I just have enough faith in your word to believe you could forgive me. If Pastor Raymond is right and I believe that he is, he said you'll forgive anybody. He said you can redeem anybody. He said that Jesus would reach to anybody. So I'm just asking, Jesus, would you reach to me? Jesus said that's the kind of person that leaves church changed. Luke tells us in chapter 15 of his gospel that 
all the publicans and sinners drew near to Jesus. And no wonder, because in a world that rejected them, Jesus accepted them and redeemed them and welcomed them into his kingdom, just like he did for Matthew, and just exactly like he wants to do for any of you or any of you that may watch this tonight or later. Jesus wants to redeem you. You don't have to impress Jesus. None of these men are impressive. In fact, most of these men in some area of their life or another are a walking disaster. And yet God in his mercy said, and I'm going to use you, Peter and Andrew and James and John. I'm going to use you, Philip and Nathaniel and Thomas and Matthew. I'm going to use you to build my kingdom. And God is looking down tonight at this group. God is looking down tonight at somebody that's watching this message. And he's saying, and I want to use you to build my kingdom. And you may think you have nothing. That's actually a really great place to start. Because if you are nothing, I am everything. If you have nothing but trouble, I have nothing but answers. If you have nothing but problems, I have nothing but solutions. I'm almighty God. I thank Jesus. Paul said that he has enabled me and put me into the ministry. Aren't you glad that Jesus just reaches down and chooses the average and the ordinary and he just puts us into his kingdom? And I close with just a personal admonition. Would you stop trying to be impressive? You're hurting yourself. Stop trying to be impressive to God. Stop trying to be impressive to others. Stop trying to defend yourself and, you know, blame other people for every little thing. See, you don't have to go through all that mess if you'll just realize this. I'm nothing but he's everything. Really on my own, I'm a total failure, but he is the answer to everything. He's the answer for this broken, shattered world. He delights in using the foolish and the unknown. He delights in using the small and the tiny and the insignificant. And when he puts us all together, this church is triumphant and this church is powerful and this church is glorious because every one of us knew walking in here that if anything good happened tonight, it wouldn't be Pastor Raymond and it wouldn't be you and it wouldn't be the music team. It would be that Jesus honored us with the breath of his presence and the touch of his spirit because when he enters into the room, it all changes, and he can say peace, and he can say rise, and he can do miracles that you can't even begin to comprehend, and it has nothing to do with us and everything to do with him. He is my Lord and my God. He is the Almighty, and he's so worthy of your praise. So why don't we stand our feet, let our hands continue toward the ceiling, let our voice escalate far higher than our hands, and would you fill this room with a praise to the God who saved you, with a praise to the one who loves you, with a praise to the one who is everything to this church, who is everything to his people. Jesus is worthy of praise. Oh, give him praise. Lift up your voice. He's worthy of you taking a couple of minutes at the end of a Bible study and just thanking him. Yes, yes.
I realize you might not even know the name of the person that's standing beside you or in front of you or behind you, but this is really important because somebody came here tonight and they're in the middle of that waiting, just like Mary and Martha. They're in the middle of that waiting and they don't understand yet. It's hard to believe it, but Jesus has delayed their miracle so that their miracle can be greater. But it's hard in the waiting, isn't it? It's hard when it's a delay. So would you reach over to anybody near you and put your hand on their shoulder? Everybody get in contact with somebody and let's just pray for a moment because here's what you don't know. Here's what you haven't thought about. Jesus can walk right into the middle of this room and say, peace be still. Peace be unto you. Healing, miracles, deliverance. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, 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 yes. Reach out and receive it right now. The peace speaker's in the room. The storm calmer is in the room. The grave opener is in the room. The wave walker is in the room. Anything is possible because Jesus is here. It's not about you. It's not about how you feel emotionally. It's about the almighty God is in the midst of his people. Yes, 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 yes. I speak healing. I speak deliverance. I speak into hospital rooms. I speak into beds of affliction at home. I speak into the troubled minds and the burdened hearts and the broken bodies of your people. I speak Jesus into the midst. I speak peace into the midst. I speak the miraculous into the midst. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's beautiful, church. That's powerful, church. Jesus is here. Jesus is here. Yes. 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 Yes, God. Mandolo la bascendere botore behete chiesa. Shore barre boto la basha babakutera basa. Eto la baha siosa babatera basha. Oh, I thank you, Jesus. I thank you, Jesus. Rebatore masiende la baha. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Don't you love the word? There's a reason we love the word. Because the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We study this word because this word reveals the word. And he's so real and so good. Pastor, come and pray over us and dismiss us. Thank you for being in Bible study tonight. What an honor and a joy to teach you the Word of God.